0: You may be aware of a podcast that came out in the spring of 2020 that sought to get to the bottom of a certain musical mystery. The podcast is Winds of Change, and it explores the possibility that a metal power ballad was a contributing factor to the fall of the Soviet Union in the very early 1990s. Okay, now, hang on, stay with me. Wind of Change was a global hit for the Scorpions, a metal band out of Hanover, in what was then West Germany. The Scorpions sing in English, but they also recorded a Russian version under the name Vetter Perimen. And when the song was released on January 20th, 1991, it became a worldwide hit. Estimates are that it sold 14 million copies. It's the best-selling single by any German artist. And because it was such a big hit in the USSR, the band presented Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev with a gold record. Even today, the song is a massive, massive hit among several generations of fans in Eastern Europe. For years, rumors swirled about this song. It is said that it was the product of a CIA operation designed to destabilize Soviet society with its message of change and revolution. And it worked so well that by the end of 1991, the Soviet Union had crumbled. So, did the CIA... Commissioned someone to write Wind of Change, get the Scorpions to record it, and somehow help bring about the end of the USSR from within? I'm I'm not going to cover that here, so you'll have to listen to the podcast. But what I can tell you is that this might not have been the first time rock music was used by a foreign intelligence operation to drive a wedge into a specific society. The popular music of the West, especially the music produced by the USA, was feared by Soviet bloc authorities. But the Soviets also knew that music could be used as a weapon against the West. So, here is another theory. Could it be that punk rock was actually a KGB plot against the West? Did things operate in the opposite direction? Well, Here's what we know, or at least what we think we know. This is the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. The Blue, I know kill me, Canada's Vile Tones, one of the fiercest of the early Canadian punk bands with KGB. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. And this is gonna be a strange episode. We're gonna go down a number of rabbit holes in the world of music and international espionage. The goal is to determine whether punk was the organic thing that we've always been told, or if it was a plot hatched against the West by the KGB. And if it wasn't a KGB plot, Did they do something to aid and abet the social upheaval that came with punk rock? Now, not all wars involve guns and bombs. There's the whole concept of exercising soft power, which can be a very subtle and effective form of propaganda. And we need to start by examining how the West used its soft power, elements from its popular culture, against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. It's sort of a proxy war. Soft power involves burrowing into an adversary's society and psyche, using what looks like benevolent things. The U.S. is very good at this, exporting its culture to all corners of the planet, creating demand for more of this capitalistic stuff. And at some point, the desire for Western or American goods and services undermines or replaces the desire for domestic material in these nations. The thinking is that oppressed people will see how much better the West has it and then start grumbling about their lot. Or maybe the population will absorb the messages in this material. This, it was hoped, would cause some kind of social instability in that foreign society where attitudes towards the enemy, in this case, the West, soften and attitudes towards their governments turn sour. This can then be exploited for political, economic, or military gain. The West gains a geopolitical advantage without firing a shot. This soft power can take the form of fast food restaurants like McDonald's, Western movies and TV shows, sports like the NBA and the English Premier League, and of course, music. It's a form of ideological struggle that's usually pretty bloodless, but also very effective nonetheless. First, let me recommend the Wind of Change podcast I mentioned a few minutes ago. It goes very deep into both the idea of the scorpions being CIA plants and everything that surrounds it. But if we're going to explore this idea of punk being, well, compromised, it's necessary to reframe and to a certain point repeat parts of that whole discussion. So if you've heard that Wind of Change podcast and some of this sounds familiar, that's why we have to cover some of the same territory. The Cold War began after World War II. The U.S. and the USSR were allies against Hitler. But after the war, they became nuclear adversaries, determined to not only maintain control over their sphere of influence, but to spread their political, economic, and social doctrines to as many other countries as possible. The two countries never went to war, but there was a lot of sniping back and forth using soft power. And Western rock and roll was a very big part of this. As far as the Eastern Bloc was concerned, rock music was subversive, crude, anti-authoritarian, too focused on free expression, morally bankrupt, barbaric, and just generally dangerous to the communist status quo especially when it came to young people. Because it could be a channel for dissent, it had to be censored and suppressed and discouraged by all means possible. So in short, it was made illegal. Nikita Khrushchev hated both rock and jazz. I quote from 1962, take these new dances, which are so fashionable now. Some of them are completely improper. You wiggle a certain part of your anatomy, if you'll pardon the expression. It's indecent, He believed that music and art would ennoble the individual and arouse him to action. Well, that's exactly what rock and roll did, but the actions aroused by the outlandish yowlings and cacophonous music weren't compatible with communist dogma. The suppression of rock gave rise to something known as the Roten which was a special type of bootleg record Using discarded X-ray film found in dumpsters outside hospitals, they were just thick enough to be turned into records. Final records were smuggled into the USSR. Jazz and rock were the favorite genres. And that material was recorded onto this film and clandestinely distributed to other music fans. You could record only on one side, they were that thin, and these records wore out very quickly, but they did the job. They sold for about a ruble, which was 80% less than a regular record, which you couldn't get anyway. One of the biggest makers, Rowan Gensadat, was the Golden Dog Gang. This was a couple of guys who prowled the garbage bins of hospitals to find this used X-ray film and then used a record duplication machine to make their product. Highly illegal. They were arrested in 1950 and sent to a gulag until Stalin died in 1953. Once they got out, they restarted their bootleg business and continued to spread Western rock on these highly flammable sheets of X-ray film. They continued even after these recordings were made illegal in 1958. Later, when cassettes came into use, music fans would spend hours and hours and hours dubbing off cassette copies of music smuggled in. By the 80s, there was an informal coast-to-coast network of bootlegging, spanning the USSR's 11 time zones. Not only did this expose millions of kids to Western rock, it also exposed them to English. They began to learn English, And once they could understand what the Americans and the British were talking about, they became even more susceptible to Western culture. This sneaky bit of subterfuge has its roots in the 1950s, when the CIA, under President Eisenhower, were involved in a series of cultural attache missions, sending American entertainers to hotspots to A, prove that there was more to American culture than Pepsi and baseball, B, inject a little American ideology into the local population and C, embed CIA agents in these goodwill tours who would do whatever spooks do. These missions continued for decades. In 1977, the nitty-gritty dirt band was chosen over the Doobie Brothers and the soft rock band America, must have been their name, to be the first American band to tour through the Soviet Union. President Jimmy Carter was all for this, thinking that rock and roll could undermine communism with... um, well, with songs like this Mr Bojangles. Mr Bojangles. Mr. Bo yeah, okay, not not very rock and roll, but they serve the purpose. that seventy seven tour was wildly successful among young people in Russia and the various Soviet republics. In fact, the demand to get into some of these shows saw the KGB totally overwhelmed. Now, there was a state-sanctioned recording industry in the USSR. The label was called Melodia, and at first, it would only record artists approved by the state. The first Soviet rock groups were Beatles and Stones soundalikes, emerging after 1964. There were two types of rock groups. Official Vocal Instrumental Assemblies, seriously, that's what they were called, and unofficial amateurs, the inference being that they weren't good enough to be signed to the state label. Vocal instrumental assemblies got to perform and record. Amateurs could only be heard at clandestine house parties and through the exchange of cassette tapes. In 1968, the state commissioned the creation of an official rock band. Yeah, a Soviet rock band created by the Soviet state. They were a clean-cut bunch called the Happy Guys, and they sang songs that said, the world is fine, and the USSR is especially great. Yeah, that didn't work. Then the authorities had an epiphany. If they couldn't stop rock, they could at least try to limit its bite to control its musicians and fans alike, under KGB supervision, of course. So, starting in 1969, the KGB got into the club business. Anyone who wanted to play these KGB music clubs had to be approved by the state. Music, lyrics, clothes, the overall image, and the touring schedule. In short, they had to be official bands, not amateurs. And everything was not so secretly run by the KGB. The most famous of these KGB rock clubs was in Leningrad, which opened in 1981. Any band who wanted to play there had to audition before a bunch of dour men in suits, who also supervised each performance from a spot on the balcony. In spite of all that, though, it became the center of Soviet rock, and thus highly influential until the place closed down in 1991. Word, and many bootleg cassettes, traveled fast, and by 1987, there were at least 160,000 amateur groups in the Russian Federation, the largest of the USSR's republics. Meanwhile, state-approved DJs started spinning in state-approved discos. So, yeah, the, the Soviet Union tried to keep a very, very tight leash on music, but things started to loosen By 1980, under supervision from the Kremlin, state recording company Melodia started bootlegging recordings by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Yes, this was intellectual property theft, but the Soviet Communist Party was essentially doing exactly what the CIA wanted them to do, distribute Western music and soft power to the population. And when Mikhail Gorbachev came to power, things loosened up even more, and amateur rock bands were given more leeway Why? Well, Gorby was a big Elvis fan. He apparently had the feeling that if the young people of the USSR wanted rock and roll, well, then they should have some. Not all of it, but some. That same year, 1985, a list of Western musical acts were circulated under the title Not Recommended Music. Next to each name was a reason why this music should not be allowed in the USSR. Here we go. Pink Floyd, interested with the foreign policy of the USSR in Afghanistan. Van Halen, anti-Soviet propaganda. The Stodges, I think they meant Iggy Pop and the Stooges, violence. ACDC, neo-fascism and violence. Here's my favorite. The Village People, violence. My second favorite. Julio Iglesias and neo-fascism. And this band terrified the apparatchiks. The Talking Heads due to their apparent love of spreading the myth of Soviet military danger in songs like this, I guess. Talking Heads with Life During Wartime from 1979, a song that apparently put them on some kind of Soviet blacklist, In 1986, an American tourist named Joanna Stingray smuggled out a bunch of recordings from Leningrad, mostly from this club, and released them on a double LP called Red Wave, four underground bands from the USSR, 1986. This did not make the KGB or the FBI very happy. Both sides were concerned that she was working for the other. didn't help that she often carried a video camera around Leningrad, trying to document as many local rock bands as she could. Here's a sample. This is a band called Aquarium, and the song is Ashes. (laughs) An example of underground Soviet rock from the 1980s. The band is Aquarium, and the song translates as Ashes. There are claims that some of these Russian bands were fed music from overseas. A singer named Soy who is very popular in his day, is alleged to have been given songs written by songwriters in Hollywood as part of some kind of CIA operation to import subversive rock into the USSR. This is a song that translates as change. Soy recorded it with his band Kino during the last years of the Soviet Union. and their singer Soy from 1989. The song is called Change, and yes it did become something of a political rallying cry in those fast-changing days of 1989, 1990, and 1991. So, long story short, rock and roll infiltrates the Soviet Union, the kids go mad for it, and the music and its message undermines everything that the Communists hold dear. The Berlin Wall comes down in November of 1989, and on December 26, 1991, the Soviet Union ceases to exist and breaks apart into the separate countries that we see today. This also encompasses the story of the Scorpions' Wind of Change story, which is told in that podcast of the same name. Now, to review the podcast, the allegation is that someone at the CIA had this song written, passed it to the Scorpions, who recorded it, and had a big hit, especially in the Eastern Bloc. And the notions of freedom contained in this song swept the region leading to the ultimate dissolution of the Soviet Union and authoritarian regimes behind the Iron Curtain. So rock music one, international communism zero, right? Well, whoever said that this was a one-way fight Did the Soviets try to influence the West through the promotion and manipulation of pop culture? Did they screw with our music like we used our music to screw with them? Well, maybe. Don't go away. Just as the West sought to undermine Soviet communism with soft power, the Soviets tried to mess with the West. A big part of the effort were what were called friendship and cultural relations societies that were used as instruments of propaganda. This included tours by Soviet ballet companies, classical music ensembles, and dancing bears in the Russian circus. Hundreds of such delegations were sent westward through the 1950s and 60s. These shows of cultural force said, see how sophisticated we are? Soviet society, so advanced when it comes to the arts. Meanwhile, every single one of those delegations had KGB operatives embedded within. So yes, there was a lot of spying, but pretty much everybody knew that. This program seeks to uncover evidence of another form of Soviet cultural export, or at least, let's call it encouragement. Just as the CIA is alleged to have infiltrated and subverted Soviet communism by careful use of rock and roll, the KGB might have done something similarly destabilizing in the West using, wait for it, punk rock. Okay, could, could this actually be true? Disco in Moscow! That's the Vibrators, an English punk band who had that seven-inch single called Disco in Moscow in the stores in the fall of 1980, right at a time when the Cold War was really starting to heat up. As far as I know, the Vibrators had no connections at all with the KGB or any other secret police organization headquartered in the Soviet bloc, but there are those who will say that the KGB did reach out and stir the pot of social unrest using punk rock. Now, punk began... As an artsy sort of thing when it first emerged in new york in the middle 1970s there were some muckraking progenitors like the mc5 who were very political but for the most part the north american punk scene was nowhere nearly as political or as class conscious as what we saw in the uk bands like the sex pistols and the clash were all about sticking it to the establishment kicking against the class system and railing against the status quo there was no way that the KGB, the Stasi, or any other secret police organization from the Eastern Bloc were unaware of the potential for punk to destabilize the UK and perhaps all of Western Europe. The KGB would have also had their fingers in violent political activists like the Red Army faction in West Germany, the Red Brigade in Italy, and any number of leftist organizations committed to revolution. And there were nationalist organizations like the IRA in Northern Ireland waging war on the UK. The aims of these groups were to do serious damage to the reigning political and capitalist system, thoughts that were often shared by punk bands. Maybe these bands didn't go as armed resistance, you know, planting bombs and kidnapping politicians. But there were some sympathies there. Could the Eastern Bloc's aim be furthered by encouraging these bands to do more of what they were already doing? What's that saying? The enemy of my enemy is my friend? Soviet authorities first became aware of punk in 1978 when bootleg tapes and illegally intercepted BBC broadcasts started dripping through the Iron Curtain. The Sex Pistols were among the first to get clandestine distribution. The KGB was was aware of this, of course, but could a song like Anarchy in the UK have been nudged along by the KGB in Britain in order to stoke the anger of UK youth and thereby destabilize UK society? One story, and we need to deal with this one right off the top, comes from an alleged retired KGB agent named Alexandrov Varenokov Volishin. He claims that the entire punk movement, from the Sex Pistols to the Clash to the Ramones, was financed by the Soviet secret police. The goal, he said, was to, quote, create utter chaos and to, quote, pervert the Western youth to nihilist, anti-establishment, and anti-American ideologies. Oh, I'm not done. He claims that many punk rock songs were written by teams of propagandists and psychologists who were experts in psyops, psychological warfare. Their goal was to increase cynicism, promote revolutionary thinking, in the communist sense of the revolution, and to encourage heavy drug use. Here's another quote. Our mission was to use teenage angst to our advantage and turn the baby boomer generation of the West into a decadent pro-drug and anti-establishment culture that would create uprisings and bring Western democracies into utter chaos. We even infiltrated mainstream radios to promote their music and reach millions of people every day. For many of us in the KGB, infiltrating the 1970s punk scene was one of the USSR's most successful experiments of propaganda to date. You might point to some of the imagery and iconography of punk back in the 1970s. I mean, why were those kids decorating their punk gear with swastikas and hammers and sickles? Why were they kicking so hard against capitalism, the monarchies, and the materialist society of the West? Why were they prone to violence and insurrection? Could it be that they were being egged on by the KGB? Well, actually, no, because this story is fake. Repeat, fake. It came from a site called World News Daily Report, which is a satirical site like The Onion. This story comes back every once in a while on Facebook and has to be debunked again. It's fake news. But given the nature of punk in the 70s, you can see why some people are only too quick to believe it. The Clash from 1979 and I'm So Bored with the USA. Just because the tale allegedly told by this alleged retired KGB agent is false, doesn't mean that the KGB didn't get into the punk game to foment hostility. They most certainly did. And this brings us to a UK band called Crass. And according to them, they were most definitely courted by the KGB. More of that story next. We are trying to figure out if the Soviet Union, specifically the KGB, had any hand in the development and spread of punk music in the West in hopes of destabilizing capitalist society. Well, did they? They certainly tried. This brings our story to an anarchist punk collective called Crass, who enjoyed hitting back at the establishment in all its forms. They were particularly angry at the policies of Margaret Thatcher and here is one of their songs called Bloody Revolutions. Let's get into this whole Crass and KGB story. They met up with a former skinhead turned sailor who had just returned to England after a tour of duty in the Falkland Islands. Remember that war? He told stories of how crazy things had been. Some of what he said was genuine classified information, material that was being kept secret from the general public. Based on what they heard from this sailor, Crass, who wrote it down, they took notes, came up with the idea of cutting together some speeches by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher to make it sound like a phone call between the two of them, sometime, allegedly, in 1982. It's a little hard to make out because it was created to sound like some phone wires got crossed somewhere. But if you listen closely, it does sound like the two world leaders are plotting a wider war that would include an attack on the Soviet Union. Thatcher also seems to take responsibility for the sinking of an Argentine battleship. Crass secretly sent that tape out to newspapers all across Europe as a joke. A few weeks later, the joke was discovered and they were exposed. Fine. haha. They still have no idea how the tape was traced back to them, but whatever, the joke was up. But it did not stop there. For more than a year, the tape was discussed by both the CIA and MI5. Okay, so was this a punk band and a crude attempt at causing trouble? A prank? But what were their motivations? Could they have had contact with Russian agents that put them up to this? Some people within the British intelligence apparatus believed, yes, it was possible, if not likely. And if it wasn't the Soviets, was it operatives from Argentina, the country the UK fought over the Falklands? MI5 opened a dossier on the band. It was kept secret for 30 years. The band had their phones tapped. Plus, intelligence spooks from the CIA looked at the tape and opened an investigation. The Pentagon took notice, too. Adding even more smoke to this was documentation that shortly after the hoax was uncovered, Krass was invited to a meeting at a supposed Russian literary magazine in London. It gets weirder still. Krass started getting courted by all sorts of shady organizations, including the real KGB. Reps from Germany's vicious Meinhof group turned up in their back garden. Do you have anything else you could offer? Did they need any assistance? Do you know anything else that could be of interest to us? Even the IRA sent word that they shouldn't worry because they were watching their backs. Crass admits that they were terrified. Their prank had turned into something genuinely dangerous to them, their country, and the West in general. Remember, it is not wise to fool with a country's national security apparatus. There's a band called The KGB, covering The Beatles. And uh, don't worry, they are from California, not Moscow. We've learned things about the KGB and punk rock since the fall of the Soviet Union. Researchers digging through government archives in Ukraine found a meticulous report of agents who were very concerned about youths in Soviet-era Kiev, who were enjoying this new music a little too much. Fans were investigated and questioned, and maybe worse. And punk itself was examined. Could it be used as a weapon against the West like they seem to be using it against us? Okay, what can we conclude from all this? Well, first of all, the KGB had nothing to do with creating the punk movement in the UK, the US, or anywhere else. Any stories to the contrary are the result of hearsay. But did the KGB look at punk as a way of screwing with the West? Based on the story of crass, the answer is, yeah, most certainly. But did they have any real success by doing so? The answer seems to be no, at least as far as we can tell, right? Once again, if you haven't listened to the Wind of Change podcast and the story of how the CIA helped bring down the USSR with a power ballad, do it. It's fun listening and you'll learn plenty about how music factored into the Cold War. If you're looking for more information on Alt-Rock, there's plenty of ongoing history podcasts available through Apple, Spotify, and all the other podcast platforms. Everything is free and binging is encouraged. There's my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day. And just so you don't miss anything, you should subscribe to the free daily newsletter. We can also connect on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And all email can go to alan at alancross.ca. And just so you know, the GRU, FBI, MI6, CIA, nobody had anything to do with this program. Trust me. No, no, really, trust me. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross.